Welcome to the Jig Is Up podcast with your hosts, Darcy and Jason. The Jig Is Up is recorded on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy, as well as the lands of Treaty 6 Nations. We aim to bring you new perspectives and open up conversations about Métis politics, culture, and current events, as well as stories that affect Indigenous from all over. If you like the show, or you don't, or if you want to send us suggestions for guests or topics to discuss on the show, feel free to email us at metispodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to follow us on all of the social media at Métis Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm Jason and with me today is Seb Millet. How are you doing today, Seb? I'm doing uh, great, despite confinement and the current uh, COVID crisis that affects uh, everyone on this planet. We're, we're doing not bad at all. We're, we're lucky. Yeah, we're, we're fairly lucky in Canada where everyone seems to have some space, a little bit of a backyard they can go to. Hopefully the weather is uh, shaping up for people. We're not all confined too much in the house. Well, hopefully, you know, this situation is not uh, too hard on on too many, but we are well aware of the dear situation in which many First Nations are facing and the Inuit and Métis people as well, you know, be often of a, of a distant community with already very little services and uh, in terms of food sovereignty, water and everything else, you know, we, we already knew that the situation was bad in many places in this country. And uh, now that we're facing this crisis, I think that we are getting to, we're, we're getting to understand that we need one another more than ever, and that we need to pull up in solidarity and make sure that the most vulnerable among, among ourselves are helped and, um, and helped in very significant way, you know, in terms of not only the disease, but also let, let, let this be a lesson to us all. I would think that you know, these remote communities, as well as First Nations, Miti and Inuit, as well as, in fact, all Canadians deserve the best services possible. And um, that we need to work together so that we, we can achieve this. And uh, I just want to put a word out there before perhaps we start and for uh, our first responders that are risking their lives out there. You know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough choice. Many of them have to separate from their families. We know people on the first lines. I mean, you know, they have to get away from their kids, get away from their loved one, their elders, in order to help, in order to support day after day. While we stay home, these people must go on the battle line every day. And um, it's, uh, it's a hard task. Myself, you know, I did just a little bit of service in that regard. Being a, a veteran of the Royal 22nd Regiment, I was deployed during the uh, big high storm. I don't know if you remember that, Jason, but, the, you know, in... in the, <laughs> A big ice storm occurred in Quebec uh, in uh, around uh, 1998, and mm-hmm. and um, that situation led to civilian, uh, you know, in need. They were in need of uh, the military, and all the authorities were in need of the military to step in and to make sure that everyone was okay in terms of security, in terms of the housing, and all of that. So, it's the it's the second major crisis at least from the perceptions of all Canadians, I would think that we're facing that may involve the military at this point at large scale. Uh, hopefully we're going to learn from this and uh, we're going to do uh, better, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. I think it uh, really does highlight the inequities a lot of uh, Indigenous communities face in chronic underfunding and so much of the services that go on there and how how much that needs to be addressed. Hopefully it comes more to light and stays in the mainstream media and uh, this uh, will result in some positive action getting done, hopefully. 
Right, right, absolutely. I'm just going to move perhaps in front of my house now because uh, I don't know, the line may be a little bit choppy. Do you hear me well? I hear you really well, yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm just going to go move in front of my house so that our conversation uh, may not be so choppy on my end. So I apologize for the, the people tuning in with us. I'm just moving around the house now with the kids and all that. So it's uh, it's adaptation for all of us, including the kids that must stay home now and not seeing their friends and all of this. And so and hopefully you guys going to, you know, recover well. I mean, we're hearing a lot about you guys in, uh, in Alberta from uh, the East Coast here. We know that your situation is pretty rough as well in terms of the economy and everything else. So we, uh, we are hoping that um, that across uh, this land, we, we may pull up in solidarity again and make sure that no one is left behind in terms of that crisis and in terms of its uh, economy. Yeah, for sure. absolutely. Yeah. So, anyway, so um, yeah. we have you on the show because you've got a new book coming out in English now. I do. I do. It's uh, it's not only, well, yeah, it's a new book. It's an uh, augmented version of our French Les Bois Brûlés de l'Outaouais, which is the uh, Bois Brûlé. You know, the term refers to historical Métis, and uh, we can discuss a little bit more about this, but the, the Bois Brûlé of the Outaouais region or the Ottawa Valley. So next, uh, right right at the border of um, Quebec and Ontario, uh, the Ottawa River there, there's a region uh, with uh, different rivers and uh, system connecting, water system connecting to it. And uh, so we did a, an examination of a community there uh, around uh, Maniwaki. So in the, you know, on the northern front of the Outaouais region on the Quebec side of it. So there's a community there that uh, exists uh, in terms of uh, Métis. You know, they exist uh, at least uh, uh, not on, not in their historical form, but contemporary form. They exist at least since the 1960s and uh, in terms of their political battles to get recognitions. And uh, so they are one of the uh, oldest and most active community in Quebec. Uh, with uh, the ABTB community as well in Quebec, per the evidence that we've seen. And so we did it, uh, an investigation about that community, you know, in terms of the historical evidence, in terms of uh, the oral evidence as well. And we wrote a book in French called uh, Le Bois-Brûlé de l'Outaouais. And um, we also did uh, an English version of that study in which it's not just a translation in French, it's an augmented version because both books were evaluated by independent community, uh, um, sorry, not community, but uh, committees. Apologize for my, my French accent. Sometimes <laughs> it's getting rough after a few days of not speaking English. <laughs> Apologize. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, independent committees that evaluated those books by peers and one the French book was published at Presse of l'Université Laval and uh, the English uh, augmented version was published at um, UBC so the the press of uh, the the University of British Columbia so uh, we're pretty happy with this uh, we did this uh, Guillaume Marcotte Michel Bouchard and myself we worked uh, really hard in, into these books and uh, the English version, we're really proud of it. I mean, um, because we want to break that, you know, linguistic solitude across the country and we want to bring this conversation to, you know, 
the nation as a whole, basically, and make sure that people do understand our arguments and not just uh, what people say about our arguments, you know, like on social media and what happened with all this, uh, this violence and all these, uh, you know, misunderstandings. I like to think in terms of media identities and the possibility that we can move forward to our clear waters in regards to that. So um, we try to do our share in regards to that by making sure that vote, you know, that the people can read it in English as well as in French. We're, we're always doing an effort to try to put our work in both language so that people can get the best of, um, of these arguments. Um, and the augmented version is an augmented version, especially in the case that reviewers from uh, UBC Press did ask us to uh, to put a little bit more uh, arguments there in terms of uh, what's going on in social media and what's going on in terms of uh, the rhetoric of uh, race shifting. And, uh, you know, you, I'm sure you heard about that, uh, mm -hmm. Jason, that a lot of people are accusing the Eastern Métis and, or, you know, Métis from everywhere else than this notions of uh, Red River Métis Nation that they are, in fact, race shifters or uh, ethnic frauds or uh, mere opportunists and, uh, and the like. So um, the editors, as well as the reviewers, ask us to be a little bit more kind of, a, you know, taking this conversation uh, to the next level, so to speak. So that we did in English, and we're, we're pretty happy with the result. I mean, we're trying our best to show that when you're studying historically the Métis, um, you're, you're, you're not seeing, you're not seeing uh, these easy accusations of uh, race shiftings and these uh, easy uh, accusation of opportunisms, you know? Um, and we're trying to show that with evidence and with historical evidence along the way, not only in terms of the region of the Ottawa region, but also in terms of the historical evidence that portray all Métis, you know? Um, so basically, if you get to know that, for example, important figures such as Johnny Grant, for example, you know, well-known Métis Johnny Grant in his memoirs, wrote plainly that at some point in his life he considered himself Canadians, at other points in his life he considered himself an Indians, and obviously as a Métis. And some could look at the life of uh, Johnny Grant, a Western Métis, by the way, and say, well, this, guy's, this guy was a race shifter, you know, this guy was not clear about his identity, and so on. Just like uh, many people are accused now today on Twitter or other social media in regards to their ancestor, or their journey mm -hmm. and um we like you know the case of johnny grant to take just one example which uh which we have explored as an example because he's a western metis show you that the metis people uh, are, are are born out of cumulative identities and this is not wrong this is this is a good thing for many metis especially back in the day where the pragmatics of surviving and thriving you know, it was seen as a, as a great thing to use the possibilities of different identities in a, in a cumulative way. That, that's not to say that you're not a Métis. It's to say that, you know, the possibility of shifting, like it is suggested, is not, is not a hallmark of uh, Métis falsity or fraud. The possibility of having shifting, the possibility of shifting identities was a tactics employed by Métis people out west, out east, out north, and out south, in order to survive colonialisms and racism. 
and in order to make sure that they could get the best out of everything, you know, including, you know, shady realities such as uh, alcohol trafficking and, and fewer contraband. Of course, uh, a lot of Métis could use the, these, uh, historically speaking, these different identities in order to make sure that they got the best out of everything, everything and every deal. Just as we know that out west, for example, we have uh, Métis people that did took treaty and some of them who opted out of treaties and back and forth like that, you know, in order to get the best deal to survive for their families, considering themselves, you know, indigenous. Um, that's the way in which people operate. So, you know, if you look at those facts and if you look at the real history of the Miti culture, then you realize that these accusations of race shifting are, are pretty, you know, are not accurate in, in terms of the situation which is going on now, you know? Um, so people back then used to, used to have different identities. Um, people today have different identities. I'm just going to tell you an example. For example, you can be, you know, some people, some Métis are, are proud to be Métis and also proud to be Québécois or Canadians or or some of them also have like dual ancestry. You know, some Métis have dual ancestry. For example, they will be First Nations and Métis, you know, in their family. So what are you asking now of these people? You know, you're asking them to be like only proud of their Métis heritage, but not proud of their First Nations heritage if they have some, mm -hmm. or Inuit heritage for that matter. I mean, you know, so this, this madness happening in universities today about like, you know, establishing the purity of Métis people for some kind of genealogical arguments or, you know, uh, the fact that they belong or not to some IDs or concepts of a nation. Uh, it's not totally accurate. And we took this conversation very seriously in order to prove that it's not only, it's not only wrong to suggest uh, that the Métis people that had different identities were just fraud, but to to make this argument today is it, no better, right? So, I mean, this is uh, this is about the augmented part that I think that the public will like about the UBC version is that we took that conversation, like I said, to the next level, and after that we did produce uh, the material and the evidence to show, in fact, that uh, the Miti of the Utawe do form a Miti population in in, in its cultural uh, aspects as well as its historical aspects. So. so what was it about that region that that interested you most, that that, that was the Métis community you wanted to focus on? Well, you know, it's a, it has been a long journey with the Utahway. I'm, you know, I myself live in the Utahway region, so this is close to home, right? I'm traveling routes and rivers that I'm seeing every day in terms of the history that we did in the archives and the documents. The research... We're always curious in terms of the research uh, in line with what we did in Songs Upon the River. You know, we wrote a book, Songs Upon the River, that basically tried to map like the, the cultural emergence of Métis peoples across the continent, across North America, right? From the East Coast to the Oregon Coast. And basically to show that there's a rhizomatic, a rhizomatic, it's like, it's like a multiplications of points of emergence, right? The Métis people being a fear trade people, like they're, their nexus by which they emerged, the Métis, is through the fear trade, 
right? We get to understand this. And by emerging through the fear craze, like Louis Riel is suggesting in his correspondence, right? He says right off the bat, you know, because Louis Riel was not immune to these questions. I mean, all the questions that we're having today, you and I, Jason, is like they were asked to Louis Riel point blank, you know? They were asked like, what is a Métis? You know, and Louis Riel answers in 1885, a Métis is, is you know, a person that has ancestry from a Canadian or Scottish father and mothers from different First Nations within the context of the fear trade was one aspect of his, of his response. You know, so this is, this is what we call in terms of Métis ethnicity and Métis culture and branch off the fear trade culture. And make no mistakes, it is a culture. You know, the, the fear trade was the so-called backbone of the Canadian culture. Both, both its beautiful and ugly aspects. I mean, we have to embrace both, you know, mm-hmm. like fear trade was spearheading colonialisms in many ways. And we're, we're penetrating land of First Nations and Inuit in many ways that mm-hmm. we have to be aware of. And so Métis people were part of that, part of that trajectory. And they were also on the receiving hands of colonialisms through that networks. Now, that being said, once we know that, there's more to it, right? I mean, the, the Métis people is not just a produce of like unions. It's a culture in its own right, you know, that sprung off, that emerged across the continent. So we did an inquiry about that, trying to accumulate evidence to show that, in fact, there's multiple points of emergence of that Mickey culture. Now, from these studies, we went into different regions to make sure that, you know, our data was in line with what, what, you know, what we could find further in different regions be it like in Northwestern territories, for example, uh, in Manitoba, obviously, but also in Northern Saskatchewan, Northern Alberta, where you have different communities, as well as in Labrador. You know, there are different experiences of Miti cultures, including in Acadia, which is one of the most uh, contested point in the academy, in the academy right now. But going back to our region to answer your question, so we did the same for the Utahwe region. Right, which is like included, very much included in the fear trade network of the old Canadian, Scotland, and it's part of that fear trade empire, so to speak, where the uh, Hudson Bay Company is battling itself with the Northwestern companies as well as other companies, uh, smaller companies along the way to get the monopoly of furs and the businesses. So the Utah West section is uh, is a region that is connected, obviously, to the creation of Bytown, which is now Ottawa, and the creation of Bytown with his uh, canal that allowed, like, you know, trading with Kingston, for example. And uh, so it's a great center of commerce, Bytown, which the HBC, the Hudson Bay Company, couldn't fully control. So they couldn't fully control that region in terms of all the trading with the Americans, and it was, like we said in French, a plaque tournante, right? A place where a lot of uh, trafficking and a lot of commerce was happening that were not under any, you know, uh, coerce authority, for mm-hmm. example, such as the Hudson Bay Company was trying in the future. Yeah. So we've studied that region to discover that, and the, the work of uh, Guillaume Marcotte is pretty powerful in that regard in his master dissertation, which he just did, and, and he's going to publish a book about this uh, in the next few months, but we discover a population of what they call free men, right? Free men were people hired in the fear trade, but that were independent enough and skilled enough 
to go on their own and to do like free trading, if you will, a fear trade. And these populations of free traders across Canada, also in the Western, obviously, uh, parts of this country, were kind of uh, very important for Métis ethnogenesis, right? The way in which Métis people like emerged, historically speaking, can be attached to these populations of so-called free men. And so we discovered that there's a huge population of free men in the Outaouais section as well, including in part of Quebec and Milwaukee. And so we dig, we dig further and further and further into these evidence until we were, also this needs to be mentioned, we were contacted by the Métis community of Maniwaki that were getting themselves involved in the, into a court case, right? And in that court case, they, they had a one member of their community, a trapper, that got in trouble for having uh, a little shack uh, in the bush where he was practicing, you know, uh, traditional harvesting ET activities. Mm-hmm. And um, so we were asked at this point if we, if we could help in order to provide any evidence of, of the history of their community. So, um, and so we did, like uh, Michel Bouchard, uh, Guillaume Marcotte and I, got together with other researchers as well and uh we um we digged the archives for more than two years and in the case of uh of Marcotte, there are more than 10 years of research in the hbc files and letters and so we gathered all our strength and we we created these uh report in order to uh show uh, the evidence about this community including oral traditions, but also uh, letters from priests, letters from uh, so-called Indian agent officials. Uh, We found uh, letters from um, travelers that speaks about the Métis of that regions. And we also found petitions from the uh, Algonquins themselves that, um, that testify of the presence of the Métis people in their region. Because Jason, you know, like I mean, you you have to understand that the uh, Anishinaabe people of uh, the region of Maniwaki were pressured by the Métis and the fallout of the fear trade at some point. You know, the fear trade didn't work. Successfully. You know, they, they had issues in the fear trade and it was collapsing and mm-hmm. and its economy was collapsing and there were a lot of layoffs. A lot of Métis were traveling back east or in different regions of Canada or the United States in order to survive and, and get some get a living, you know? So uh, the same happened in the Utawe region. So Métis got back there around uh, 1836, 37, 38. And, um, and some Métis got back with their wives and with their entourage and try to create a community next to uh, next to the Indian reserves, just like their lifestyle. You know, they were used to have this lifestyle all across North America, you know, living in proximity to First Nations, having, you know, close kinship alliances, but also commercial relationship with First Nations. You know, that was part of their cultural traits, so to speak. And so we found a similar, the same evidence in the Maniwaki region, where at some point, some Métis wanted to get on the reserves, res, you know, a reserve for the Anishinaabe people. 
And the Algonquin did at least two petitions that we know of complaining to Ottawa that these French Métis and Scottish Métis uh, needed to get out of their reserve and their politics, you know? So by doing this, um, these, these evidence help us to pinpoint that yes, there were Métis in that region. We know that not only because descendants of these people still identify today as Métis, but see, the problem, Jason, is that we do not believe them. So we do, do not believe no longer these Métis and their own voices in claiming that they are Métis or that their Mimer and Tepere told them that they are Métis and they should be proud of being Métis and the different language used for that, right? Like, I mean, if you know Métis community, you know that some of the Métis that I've seen across Saskatchewan, Manitoba, as well as in Northern Quebec and all that, I've traveled to these different places. And you know that these people are talking and sometimes, you know, like what I say, like common language. They will say, you know, remember that we have, you know, we're Métis and, and remember that we have, you know, Indian blood in ourselves and things like that. And it's not always the best language to formulate their, their identities like, you know, universities would like, like it today to be mm-hmm. or, or the politics of it today. But it is still like so. So we have to be like cognizant of all that history and all of that culture to understand truly, okay, like these guys were, were also Métis and these guys live it experiences of their own and shape it the appreciations of their identity in a very specific way. Like, you know, like for example, in Maniwaki, close to Maniwaki, we have a, a small community called Lac St. Mary, which is in our book, which the reader will be, will be able to read about and evaluate for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. A small community of Lac St. Mary next to Maniwaki. And this small community was created by uh, François No and Elizabeth McPherson, okay? And Elizabeth McPherson, among other Métis, uh, they were, all these people were squatters, okay? Free traders in the fear trade, you know, retired fear traders, uh, Métis or with Métis children going there in 1830s. So we're not talking about 1650 and others like, you know, strange illusions like that. We're talking about 1830s creating themselves uh, a small community of of Métis families getting together. And in that canoe, the first time they came close to that community was George McPherson there. And if you know Métis history, you know that George McPherson is through through Métis and was part of negotiations um, for the Treaty Tree, for example, further west. And, um, and so, and, and wh- how do we know that? It's because we found the evidence in the HBC correspondence that clearly states that the HBC was nervous with all these newcomers and Métis in the regions, right? They didn't like that. They wanted these Métis to, you know, go away for them not to disrupt the trade even further, but also they didn't like these squatters. They didn't like these Métis, right? And they didn't want these Métis to form communities of their own either uh, because, you know, they could influence the First Nation hunters into the trade and they could like, you know, produce other agitations. It was deemed, um, it was deemed by colonial authorities in that regard. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is how we went about to study that community. 
And to give you a plain example of this, you know, the English book, I don't know if you could like uh, on your show, uh, show a picture of the front cover of our book at UBC, but there's a lady on this book, you know, like the upper part of the book shows a lady there sitting. And, um, and I don't know if you know who, who is that lady, Jason. <laughs> Tell us who, who's the lady. Who is the lady, right? The yeah. question is. So I think it, it's pretty evocative and pretty interesting because that lady on the cover, her name is Mary Key Taylor. Okay. And Mary is the daughter of Jane Key, who is a chief factor of the HBC at Montreal at this point. And her mother, so the mother of Mary on this picture, is Mary Cadot. You know, so Mary Cadot is a very powerful meaty line from Sault Ste. Marie. Okay, mm -hmm. so here you have like the Miti uh, daughter of Jane Keat and Mary Cadot. And listen to this. She married uh, Thomas Taylor, a Miti from Red River in 1831. And both of them can be found to live at uh, next to um, Rivière-Lelièvre here in the Ottawa with and among other Miti families, some locals and some others from uh, different parts of Canada getting together. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious that not only there, there is a Métis community um, in the Outaouais region in terms of historical evidence, in our opinions, but it's also pretty clear that we can find further evidence that our conceptions of the Métis network across North America is accurate. Right, because you see Red River Miti um, having further unions with other Miti people across this continent, be it in Sault Ste. Marie, be it in Maniwaki, Quebec, be it in ABTB inland, or in, the, in different locations. Mm -hmm. So if this is true, then what are we doing when we are suggesting that there are only Miti um, in Red River? You know, it's not to say that Obviously, there are Métis in Red Rivers. Obviously, there is perhaps even a different culture that have evolved out of Red River, a different political understanding of themselves, a different, you know, way of seeing Métis identity with time, obviously. I, I, you know, I have no beef with that. Uh, but I would suggest that this is also true for other regions across Canada. And that these people are not simply non-status Indians confused about their identity or people that didn't know what Métis truly meant. I mean, come on. You know, these people were culturally the same as any other Métis across this continent. Okay, so this is the statement that this book has put it out there with evidence that spread over 200 years from different sources showing that these people were recognized collectively and distinctively as Métis. Why we're saying that? Because sometimes many of these quotes, historical quotes, identify the Métis from the Outaouais, different from the French Canadian and different from the so-called Indians of these locations. So clearly, a, numbers of, a number of actors, including influential priests, such as Father Nedelec, right? 
And there's also other priests that have testified of the same. Mm. Um, sh- like their, their testimonies clearly makes no conflation or confusion between Métis or half-breed versus French Canadians versus so-called Indians or Anishinaabe or Atikamek of that region. Things were clear enough. Things were so clear that, in fact, uh, we have found evidence of, uh, of uh, Métis being discriminated against because they were Métis, you know? Uh, right in that region, the same way that Métis were often discriminated against in the Western prairies or uh, elsewhere in Canada. So, I mean, what we did in this book is that we took evidence seriously. We created ourselves um, a grid by which we have criteria to assess, you know, uh, what could be the emergence of a Métis community. And we did this not, a, not out of our hat. We did this by reviewing um, reports that were made by ethnologists and experts studying Métis populations across Canada. So, you know, in the Western prairies and the, in the Eastern parts of Canada, as well as other places, we accumulated all this work and we created ourselves the best possible grid to study Métis from a cultural perspective, right? And after that, we made sure to identify all the shortcomings and all the silly arguments that could be formulated against the Métis in order to warn the readers and also the academic community that, you know, we have to be careful, we have to be easy on impugnating intent and, uh, and judging Métis identity per different ideologies that are now uh, very popular in our university and elsewhere. So we did that grid and we did a comparative analysis showing how Métis in Ontario as well as in Red River, could be, you know, could be compared to those Métis we found in the Outaouais region. And, well, in terms of cultural material uh, aspects and the oral traditions, I mean, it's the same. It's the same culture. So now, Jason, one of my problems I'm having with all of these findings is obviously, this obviously begs the question to some folks out there that are rejecting Quebec, you know, along provincial borders that didn't exist back then, and other politics, it begs the question, what are these people talking about? You know, it begs the question, like, if they really knew their culture, and kinship, the way in which they say they do, so much so that they allow themselves to discard and to violently negate the history of other Métis across this land, okay? So to be honest with you, okay? So this is, this is what's happening now. I mean, we have, unfortunately, uh, the leadership, for example, of the Métis National Council talking about uh, a third invasion by Easterners. I mean, you know, Jason, this is pretty serious language, okay? Yeah, for sure. So I'm asking, in terms of these evidence, like, what are we talking about? If we're talking about Métis culture, let's be honest and let's be transparent about it. 
Now, if we're talking about multinationalisms, we ought to know that this is a different thing. It's not to say that we are against nationalisms. I mean, you know, there's different forms of nationalisms out there. If you ask Harry Daniels, for example, in one of his book, Métis Leader, among others, right? Harry, the great Harry Daniels. Mm -hmm. He said that, you know, the Métis were the original Canadians because they were, you know, the new people that was created out of First Nations, Inuit, and Canadians and Scotmans and, and different ethnicities coming together. Now, if you're asking Louis Riel, Louis Riel, when he wrote a letter to his cousin in 1877, because we do read those letters in the context that they should, is also pretty pleased with the fact that Métis is an inviting and inclusive term that will allow all Métis from all different ethnicity to come together as a people. See, Louis Riel was trying to forge this notion of a Métis nation that was inclusive, wide, and strong. Now, we know that politics got in the way, right? Um, I mean, the politics mm -hmm. of that surrounds this work, basically since the Constitution. Yep. When everybody was fighting with the Native Council of Canada, right, before 1982, Everybody was fighting for recognitions and inclusion. Everybody was pledging not to leave anyone behind, you know? And we have evidence in our book that will show you that, that will show you that the Utawe Miti people and their descendants were present in 1981 and 1982, you know, making representation to the government because their people were being pushed by the forestries and their rights were not recognized and respected. I mean, these people are not out of the woodwork. They've been arguing for a long time about their meaty rights and cultures, but nobody listened to them. Not only Canada doesn't recognize that population at this point, but the Quebec government doesn't do a good job at this either. And Quebec nationalism certainly doesn't help, to be honest. For sure. Because it appears that they do not want at this point to recognize further indigenous people on what they want to be their unified land. So everybody prior to 1982 was like up in arms and fighting together. And then we know that right after that, right after that magic word of Métis was put into the Constitution, then a new organization, the Métis National Council, created themselves and started to argue that no, in fact, only them were the real Métis. It started out by saying that they needed to represent the best interest of the Western Métis, right? If you look at the evidence, mm -hmm. and future generation needs to know that, right? Like, I mean, we cannot be fooled into this. And so basically, yes, that's true, okay. We understand that Western Métis may have different needs and different, you know, for example, like issues with land claim and whatever, and that other Métis across this country may have different stories or different understanding of their politics and culture, that's fine. But then it turned out to be that the argument started to be, we are the only meaty into the land, the real meaty into the land. So our, our work and this book begs the questions with evidence. It's like, is that true? What is this, this, this thing about being the only true meaty across the land? Mm -hmm. You know, and so we know that the story goes that only, you know, the Western meaty acquired... Um, the political will or the political identity strong enough to be a real people. 
and that all the other Michi across the land were not aware of their identity as half-breed or as Michi. Personally, on its face value, I, I find that this this suggestion is is bizarre. Okay, <laughs> yeah. people are quite aware of being Michi and half-breed, especially when they are discriminated against for that reason. Mm-hmm. And the case being, we are seeing that in Quebec in 1896 in the correspondence of Father Nedelec when he is asking that the Michi people ask, access the Timiskaming reserves at that point. And we found this correspondence in, uh, in Ottawa, and we found, the, we found also the response from Ottawa saying back to the priest, we do not want the Métis to form any community in, in, this, in this territory. So it seems pretty clear that not only the government in 1896, not in 1650, like other scholars are trying to create a straw man, mm-hmm. in 1896, like these Métis people are pushed to the margin and are pushed to be, uh, you know, push toward further assimilation. Mm-hmm. And this is what the evidence are showing. This is not what Seb Millet or Bouchard or Marcotte is saying. This is what the evidence are saying. Now we have these, these scholars coming from, you know, the neo-nationalist corner that will reply to that. No, these people were not crew Métis. I mean, people are just confused, you know. They, they label them Métis. They call them Métis in these letters. But these are not Métis. They are, they are, in fact, Algonquin, mixed blood, not, not aware of themselves. Well, no, no. Why? Because we have so-called pure Anishinaabe, the way in which they call themselves in the correspondence, saying that they do not want these, these Métis on their reserves. Mm-hmm. And we even further that, we have a new article coming, Jason, that will be published in a few months now. We even found the... Um, The, the voting ballots and the, the different political correspondence about the management of that reserve to show that um, there were a coup attempted by uh, factions of Miti people to seize the power of the reserve against the Algonquin. So the Algonquin were not wrong in suggesting that this was not right, this was not fair. So we have evidence of all that politics that did oppose groups of Métis people against sometimes colonial authorities with the Anishinaabe people squeezed in the middle of all of that politics, sometimes in good terms, sometimes in bad terms. These are human beings after all, so they're they're no angels. <laughs> But surely we can see that through evidence that there are Métis people identified collectively and distinctively as Métis people And for crying out loud, there's even families from Red River marrying with the Utawe Métis, you know? So if you are going on a limb and suggesting that you know who you are and these Métis people surely do not know anything about themselves and Métis culture, then I reply to you, sir, that at least you should know about the Paul family or the Taylor family, or the McPherson family, or the McGregor families, or the so, you know, the, the Cadet family. I mean, there are many Mickey families 
that I've joined in these communities from all over North America, but also including from Red River. So, I mean, this nationalisms that now exclude other Métis, um, in my opinion, has a very shallow understanding of Métis culture. You know, it's and it's sad. It's sad, truly, because, I mean, there's no need for that. I mean, you can have a Métis nation that would restrict his membership per various criteria. This is fine by me. If they think that's the best way to go forward with this, if a group of people think it's the best way, I have no beef with that. My job is with evidence and with culture and with, um, you know, establishing media genesis. I have no beef with that culture. Where I will have a problem, however, it's when this politics, this new politics and new nationalisms is used to do historical revisionisms. And to suggest that other Métis were lesser, uh, that they were just mixed blood, that didn't ha- they didn't have consciousness, and treating other Métis people across this land as inferior and subject to you know language such, such as race shifter and all of that. That, that. that, to me, it's the limit, where both evidence and common sense call for something else. Well, it's been actually quite quite amazing the amount of evidence uh, that you've obviously um, been able to research in doing this book. Uh, can you tell us, do you got any new projects that are coming up? Well, we do. You know, uh, we have uh, back-to-back, we got this book at UBC coming out, and we've got a new book um, waiting. It's going to be published in the uh, next few months as well, and this is a co-edited book that uh, we have planned for some time now and we'll have different chapters from different contributors um, that that are exploring the the history and the culture of the eastern Métis in particular pieces about um, about the uh, Acadian Métis for example which are still under a lot of pressure due to current politics um, not to exist right basically the government doesn't recognize their existence there are First Nations people that are really not happy about these people coming forward for, I would think, for obvious political reasons and statu quo, mm-hmm. right? Uh, sure. The same way that uh, we remember that uh, that uh, Tony Belcourt was told by First Nations in Ontario that, you know, not to meet with them and that they would come and they would cause trouble in Ontario if Michi were recognized there you know that that famous story Mm -hmm. well the same happened everywhere the same happened in quebec the same happened in in the eastern provinces of canada for the acadian Métis people and so we did you know further studies and we're still doing studies in that region to establish again the facts and the evidence and um and so we've we have put it a book together it's going to come out shortly and perhaps i can come back on your show to talk to you a little bit more about it but Essentially, you know, if you want a teaser about that book, um, I'm going into the case, uh, uh, one of uh, the chapter going into the case of a, a guy named Maxime Cormier. And I don't know if you remember that story, Jason, but Maxime Cormier and his father are young. He's a young musician playing guitars. He's a, he's a you know, an amazing musician and works with his dad to, uh, you know, to produce music. Mm-hmm. that is is in line with with his understanding of Miti culture and uh so uh 
the usual uh, suspects and activists came online and discovered that this guy was being nominated by the ECMA, East Coast Music Award, for, for a prize, right? For a recognition. Yep. And so they went after ECMA so hard on social media and in other places that um, they were successful in ECMA pulling back this award for, for, for Maxime Cormier. Yep. And so I took that case seriously. Me and another author, that book, took that case uh, very seriously. And uh, we, 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 we asked the question, well, could Maxime Cormier be an indigenous person? I mean, what would, what would, it, what would it take to understand that Maxime Cormier, as well as the community that supports him and that share with him uh, an identity and an understanding of their past and a vision about their future, what would it need from the international perspective, from the indigenous perspectives, as well as you know, the rule of law in this country, what would it take for that person to be understood as indigenous? And what is the past of that person? What are the evidence? Like, I mean, what is the, the origin of the family of Maxime Cormier? Mm -hmm. And so we did all of that in that chapter to show uh, that not only we believe that Maxime Cormier is an indigenous person and has the right to call himself a Métis, if that is fitting him and his community the best, but that this violence on social media, these, uh, it, it has to stop. It, like it's not productive. It's it's shaming people per their genealogy, laughing people down because they have only one drop of Indian blood, or laughing people down because their genealogy goes back too far, or laughing people down because you say, "Well, I have indigenous ancestry and I'm a settler, so therefore you're a settler." No, it means that you had a different experience in your families in the chain of transmission, by which you accept to have been assimilated, and other may not have accepted that. That is the difference, you know? Mm -hmm. In the same way, we, we laugh down people that have so little Indian blood. Well, that, you know, excuse me the, the term, but that is that has been the white man mentality since ever. You know, to show that the indigenous people would, would be like legal blocks or like a liquid of some sort, you know, that you can delude. No, that's that's wrong as well. If you, if you take out one of these ancestors, Guess what, Jason? You cease to exist. <laughs> exactly. Okay, it's not just like this block can be replaced anywhere down your, your tree. And furthermore to that, if you allow me, this is a very, you know, mischaracterization of Miti culture and the struggles that Miti people have across this continent. Why? Because Miti culture and its transmission and the way in which we may experience it is not reducible to, uh, to genealogy alone. The genealogy comes with the pressure to identify yourself and to be objective about your ancestry. Mm -hmm. There, this is why people go back to genealogy. You know why? You know why, Jason, people go back to their genealogy? Because there's a number of academic out there, as well as activists, pissing on these people, not believing what they say. This is why people get nervous about their genealogy and goes to the wall with their genealogy and try to say, yes, yes, I do exist. See, see how this is significant for us. But there's no people that I've ever met across this land in my studies that reduce only their Métis experience and identity and heritage to that genealogy alone. 
Absolutely. It's always something more than this. So, you know, to take symptoms of colonial pressure and weaponize it against Métis people, among which we find the most vulnerable populations in Eastern Canada right now. I mean, Jason, we're talking about a population that couldn't even pay my fees as a researcher or the one of my, you know, uh, collaborators. I mean, they didn't have any money to pay in order to have an equal access to justice. Mm -hmm. This is how bad the situation is now, you know? And you have people on the internet saying that, oh, well, these Eastern researchers are only about money. I mean, what are they talking about? And then we, we have like, Meaty political figures of importance in this country suggesting that we have an Eastern invasion and that these people are like stealing rights. I mean, for crying out loud, we cannot steal rights. Rights are not like a cookie jars. You know, if I'm exercising my charter rights, for example, am I stealing yours by doing that? Obviously not. You know, the same way that the same way that people cannot possibly stole the millions of dollars that the multinational council is receiving are any groups. I mean, these monies are reserved to these organizations per special deal they had with the feds. I mean, the situation is that the Eastern Métis right now do not even have money for an office, let alone recognitions. They're left in disarray mm -hmm. with increasing regulation that push them to become like either Indians or either Canadians or nothing at all. And when we're trying to establish, you know, respectful conversation about this in terms of resurgence, in terms of evidence, in terms of scrutinize what has been written about Miti, the complexity and the beauty of Miti cultures across Canada. And let me, this, let me say this clearly to you, the specific indigeneity of the Miti people in terms of cumulative experiences, identities, the usage of shifting back in the past in terms of surviving, all of these characteristics should not be laughed down and weaponized in order to, to suggest that now there's a third invasion of Métis, that people are stealing rights, that people like, this is, this is, this is a call for unrest. This is a call for, you know, for, for, for people to get frustrated with issues that sadly, when you look at evidence and what's really going on in terms of research, doesn't exist. It simply doesn't exist. I mean, Jason, it's a good recipe for any form of nationalism out there to identify an enemy and like a scapegoat, right? And mm -hmm. you attach to that scapegoat all the bad thing there is in the world, right? So you'll say that these Eastern Métis are fakes and opportunists and you know, and then you will try to entice First Nations to aid them as well. And then these guys are stealing our rights and our monies. And you will go on shows and you will cry yourself out, you know. And you'll say like, well, these guys are evil doers and they have the worst intent. Let me be straight with that as well. Like, yes, we've seen a number of cases across Canada of people misusing indigenous heritage okay and this in the east as well as in the west or in other places all right mm -hmm. but this is not to suggest that these people are not indigenous this is to suggest or that their heritage may not be true or not true this is to suggest that their behavior is bad and if you want to target their bad behavior then let's do that 
let's target bad behaviors. Let's target, for example, people that are abusing Michi and believing that they will gain rights that they will never gain, for example, due to the lack of evidence or, you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, ma making sure that there's no one abusing, like, you know, land claim or anything of that sort due to due to politics these these behaviors could be criticized in and of themselves but see we don't need to attach what we consider bad behaviors with ethnicity because if we do that then we fall into the realms of prejudices and we fall into the realms of like chauvinisms and all the worst thing that most canadians want nothing to do with i mean you know our like Mm -hmm. So absolutely, yeah. So this is <laughs> so this is where I stand on on some of these issues while pursuing pursuing that work, right? Which which puts us at odd. I mean, you've you've seen Jason like all the publicities in the media that these accusation of race shifting is getting. You know, the tractions of you know having suspicion toward the wrong indigenous people and. And, you know, there's a high degree of anxiety in Canada in regards to authenticity when it comes to Indigenous issues. But we have to realize that the Métis people are not Indigenous in the same way than, for example, First Nations or Inuit with a different history and a different makeup and a different experience of their past, as well as vision for their future are. I mean, I believe through the work that I'm doing, what I'm seeing emerging is that we have different conceptions of what Indigeneity could mean. And we have we have to be respectful and and open enough to see those differences and that these are okay as well, right? And so that if Miti people are considering themselves to be indigenous people, but from a very different place in their history, culture, and in terms of their worldviews, well, this is fine as well. There's 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 room for complexity in 2020. There's room to to see that nationalisms can be fine and good if it's used to help your people striving going forward. Now, if other Métis people want to strive on their own, let's say, for example, the Ontario Métis, well, they have the right to do so. Like, see, I don't understand all of this politics right now with the Sikh community in, uh, in Ontario. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you know, there. I don't know if you heard about it, but... Yeah. There has been a political uh, meeting where uh, two scholars were asked to produce on behalf of MMF a report to negate the existence of six Métis community in Ontario and all of their families and all of their histories. And when they came, because you have a recording now available online, if you want to put a link, I don't know if you can do that in your show, but you can see that. You know, the professor O'Toole from the University of Ottawa is admitting point blank that he did no research, no archival, no ethnological research further into these communities. And that basically is criticizing the report on their face value. And guess what? He's criticizing this report by two main lines. One suggests that we are confused about using the term half-breed versus Métis, which again, you know, let's be clear about this. This is BS. Okay, this, I mean, <laughs> Louis Riel was using half-breed as well as Michi, depending the language, English or French he was using, okay? These splitting hair and four in regards to using half-breed versus Michi, that doesn't, that doesn't cut it. If you want to be a serious scholar, you have to, you know, raise better argument than this and make sure that you're grounding yourself into a ethnological understanding of Michi culture 
as wide as possible and on comparative aspects. This was not done by these scholars presenting the document that they did at MMF, that's A. And then they go on and they say, well, these are not Métis people because these are not fitting the neo-nationalist understanding that we have of Métis people from Red River. But obviously not, they're not, Jason. <laughs> I mean, these guys are Ontario Métis with their own history, their own culture, relating back, for example, to the Mika Bay incident, which we speak in our book, okay, mm -hmm. in regards to the Sault Ste. Marie treaty negotiations that did fail for the Métis, okay, during the Robinson in 1950. Yep. And all the other aspects that did happen in uh, in Ontario. I mean, there's a rich history of Miti culture there, and all of this now is being denied. Denied for what, Jason? Denied because the MNC leadership, the Miti National Council leadership, is suggesting that Ontario is opening the door for a third invasion of Eastern Miti. I mean, Hollywood cannot craft a better story than this. I mean. <laughs> Would make a good what, movie. What in, well, I mean, it made a good movie. What invasion? I mean, what money? I mean, what rights? <laughs> Eastern Métis at this point are deprived of all of the above. You know? And, and then we, we are trying to produce evidence to suggest that and show clearly that Métis communities in Western Quebec are connected to Sault Ste. Marie, are even connected by, fam by some family kinship to the community of Red River, and further west and further north, the Paul, for example, in Northwestern Territory. And and but but this is this is not this is not appreciated at all. No, rather we have scholars now that sadly are taking these political and ideological arguments further down the rabbit hole. And and truly I, I mean I we can only wish that by the work that we're doing that we're gonna produce a better and more respectful conversation of the diversity of Métis people uh, across Canada. And let me be honest about this, like the study we did like shows that, you know, the Métis, that there could be a Métis community in Western Quebec in the Outaouais region most specifically. But it has to be well understood that Métis culture is a diaspora, that the Métis, like the Métis peoplehood is in sync with its cultures and that as such you know you don't have to be contained by a community such as a village or settlement or a regional community you must do and demonstrate so if you want to go for section 35 rights this is well understood but we have to understand from the perspective of meeting people in culture that the network of the fuel trades and this the geographic distributions of all Michi across this continent as well as in the United States have nothing to do with these limitations per settlements or these limitations for even regional communities. Okay, these are juridical notions tailored to contain Michi rights bearing communities in line with previous jurisprudence, for example, that we find in Vanderpeek. It has nothing to do with the breadth and the, the vast aspects, as well as the complexity of Métis peoples across this lands in terms of its cultural makeup. I mean, we can have different philosophy, we can have different political um, entities now representing the Métis, but certainly not in the way in which 
it is portrayed now in terms of its sole concentration per one point of origin, that being Red River, by which then the only real Métis emanates from. It's not, it, I mean, it's convenient for the government to think that way. It's certainly convenient for some Métis in Red River to think that way. And let me just remind you, Jason, I know I'm speaking a lot, but <laughs> I guess confinement does that, does that to you, right? When, when you get confined, you don't speak to a lot of people. I guess I'm in a herd there. But, uh, you know, remember the Pauli trial. Do you remember all the arguments that the Crown put it forward in order to negate the rights of the Pauli family? Like, do, sure. do, you, do you remember all these arguments? Huh? Yeah. Well, let me refresh the memory of, of our listeners as well as, as all of ourselves. The Crown uh, attempted to make a few arguments in order to negate the, the existence of the Pauli families as real Métis people. First of all, the crown did mock the blood quantum of the Pauli family. It was like, give me a break. You know, these people, have you seen their blood quantum? I mean, they have only one indigenous ancestor, like close to seven generations ago. And they've married with Germans and they've married with like French Canadians and they've married with all kinds of people. And there's no endogamic practice, which means like Michi marrying Michi within the Pauli family. And as this was not enough, then they suggested, the Crown suggested, well, Sault Ste. Marie was never a community to begin with. Are you kidding me? Look at that shallow community. And it went under. And all these types of argument in order to negate the existence of Michi rights were formulated into the Pauli trial, the famous Pauli trial. And all of these arguments were not accepted by the Supreme Court in defining the Sault Ste. Marie Michi communities which has forever changing, changed the landscape of, of Michi rights in Canada, as we know. And now, see, all of these arguments now, curiously enough, are now, are now taken back and, and disseminated by the Michi National Council and suggesting that from their political view and suggesting that the Eastern Michi are, are not real Michi or that even the Ontario Michi now their new target are not real Métis, it appears. Right? So, and, and the same goes for scholarly work. We have scholarly work now being celebrated in the media that holds the very same rhetoric that the Crown tried to do to negate the Paoli rights to fish and hunt and harvest as Métis people. So, it's not, this, is, this is not something new, Jason. This is what I'm trying to suggest. Mm -hmm. The, the, negate, the negation rhetoric against Métis peoples across this country has been the same forever, has, has, has shown by the correspondence of Louis Riel once again. I know some people are being tired of hearing me speak about Louis Riel, especially when I think the evidence are pretty, are pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. But Louis Riel, you know, admittedly, knew what he was speaking about when he spoke about Métis culture. And his, in, his, in his correspondence, you find that Métis, like that Louis Riel is laughed about by other people saying that, you know, sure, to be sure, you don't have a lot of Indian blood in you, Louis Riel. Mm -hmm. You could pass for white anywhere you would go. So, and in, in his correspondence in 1885, he rejects that argument, as a Métis leader should, in my opinion. He says, Irrespective of the amount of blood that you may have in you, you know, we are we are asked to be proud of both our mother and father lineage, 
And in coming to that identity and that understanding that if you have anything about that heritage in you being like Métis heritage, right? And claiming yourself to be a Métis, then you are a Métis. Mm -hmm. See, the freedom and the power of that affirmation has nothing to do with the tyranny of self-affirmation. And people are going like, yeah, well, now there's a gazillions of French Canadian that will start claiming to be Métis. And this is not true. And this is this is false. Like, I mean, what do you know about that? Yeah. Like, there's a lot of French Canadian that wants nothing to do with it and define as Métis. But there's some of them that do recognize their indigenous ancestors and their Métis cultural aspects and heritage and for them it's important mm -hmm. so this is what louis riel allows further right and so all of these questions in terms of media identities it's not about self-identification alone we believe we have cultural criteria sturdy enough to assess what is media culture and what are media communities as well as media identities they belong to pure trade culture they belong to a specific material culture being um, halfway between European practices and First Nations or Inuit practices, you can see them merging together in creating new practices or practices that are applied from both the, the, you know, the originating culture, basically. So we have that. We have multiples of languages coming together because Métis spoke different languages from the different nations that got together. We have this. Then we have their spatial distribution across North America, which pretty much line up the traditional territories of the Métis per their history. And then we have like specific kinship uh, alliances of the First Nations and Europeans and Inuit coming together to create that Métis people. But furthermore than that, we have the codifications of that kinship because predominantly father are Canadians and Scotman and mothers from different First Nations which has repercussions when this is picked up by colonial authorities to enforce the so-called Indian Act. And the Indian Act did create status Indians out of 876 by excluding ex especially the Métis. Yeah. And we found that again in the correspondence and working in our books because there, is a, there are a number of Indian agents that, going, that are going to different reserves and are seeing that there's Métis there as well as so-called Indians and they're asking the government in letters that we found in the archives, how am I going to do that? How am I going to decipher who are the Indians and who are the Métis? They're living together, you know, they're intermarrying. They're... And so the government replies in one of his letters, ask the people who their dad is. If the dad is Canadian or Scottish, you boot them out of the reserve. So basically what happened is that the Métis are facing discrimination due to their kinship structures in line with the fear trade, which then create a shared experience of discrimination. And then, a sh and then the boundaries of their identities becomes clearer about this form of discrimination, irrespective of nationalistic grand narrative, a flag or whatever. Métis people are well aware of being Métis, well aware often that they have to hide their heritage and facing mounting racisms in regards to anything indigenous in this country, right? And so the, the, the suggestion that Métis identity has to be limited to this notions of, of nation, you know, um, alone is, 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 is not good. It's, mm -hmm. it's historical revisionism. Absolutely. I think we have to tap into the cultural understanding of Métis identities 
and then be respectful of the different nationalistic narratives that emerge from this, including the one from Michi National Council, if they are ready to settle with the fact that other Michi can also exist, just like the, I think, Jason, it's the, um, I was there during the Daniels trial, you know, in 2008. And I was present when the Miti Settlement General Council from Northern Alberta did their representation in the Supreme Court. And I don't know if you remember in their intervention, paragraph 30, if my memory serves me correct, you see them plainly state that, and I'm paraphrasing now because I don't have the quote in front of me, but plainly states that they are rejecting and objecting to any attempts by any organization to seize control over all Miti voices across this country. And they are making the suggestion to the court. And no one will say that the Miti settlement are not Miti, okay? Mm-hmm. And they're saying that the diversity of Miti across this country should be respected in the same way that there's a Miti, that there's a, there's a diversity, sorry, about the so-called Indians or Inuit across this country, which are generic terms to, to understand that word. So I think that we need to divorce fear, neo-nationalist rhetoric, which are fueling on these fears to create artificial boundaries and straw mans and easy target. And we need to further divorce this from claim of racial shifting. That's, it's a really bad idea to investigate meaty culture in terms of race shifting. Okay, because if there is one antidote as a culture to racism, it is the Métis. Okay, I mean, the Métis are, are culturally um, anything but the essentialization of a race, you know, that you could shift from one to the next. I mean, they are the merging of contingencies and multiple forms of heritage mm-hmm. coming together to create a new people and a sense of community that was forged in very specific historical material. Exactly. So, you know, this is, this is what we try to do. And I don't know if I've said too much, but this is what we've tried to, to address in the first part of our book, Bob Relay for the readers. And then we get further into the evidence of the Grand Utawe after that specific evidence to the Lac St. Mary experience that went down there always showing the archives. And then we discuss the experience of, uh, for example, the oral traditions of Marie-Louise Riel, you know? Mm. And then we further expose the, the continuity of the Michi in that region, claiming their rights up to 1980s. And you know, Jason, just to, just to touch up on this, we've made an article recently about the, I don't know if you saw that passing by the soldier, Patty Riel. Mm-hmm. So, um, that work will be translated in our next volume. And this is a very unique story about the soldier of the First World War, expert sniper, a war, a war hero, you know, uh, Patrick Riel. And Patrick Riel is uh, a Métis from Maniwaki, from the same community from Lac Sainte Marie. In fact, uh, his godfather was Francois No and Elizabeth McPherson. So really tied to that family. And what's fascinating is that when you take that family and you investigate the records, you see that his father, the father of Patrick Riel, 
who was sent overseas to fight the German was was written down as a French Canadian farmer. But you know, he was living among a French Metis communities right next to the River Gatineau. And you know what? <laughs> he was celebrated in all the war press as a war Metis hero, redeeming the reputation of the Metis nation uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. And everybody assumed that he was a relative of Louis Riel. Even himself claimed to be a relative of Louis Riel. And that's a fascinating story because like a lot of people that did investigate the genealogy of Patrick Riel did find that it was not related to Louis Riel, except one of the first Riel that came in Quebec a few generations before Louis Riel himself. So they mm-hmm. are connected by family, but not, you know, he's not his uncle, he's not his, <laughs> he's not his cousins or stuff like that, right? Yeah. And a lot of people see, well, see, see, Mallette is proving us, you know, this is bullshit. Like, I mean, this was not a real Riel, so like, he was not a real Métis. And again, I'm, I'm responding, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. This work is so important because it shows that the Métis people of the Outaouais despite the fact of not being straight like straightforwardly related to Louis Riel are still claiming kinship with him and are still claiming a common identity as part of the Miti nation and we're talking about 18 sorry 1912 19 um, 1918 uh, here mm-hmm. okay so we're talking about first world war period we're not talking about the 16th century either and so, and this guy keeps his identity alive so much so that when he's drafted to go to war, the draft, uh, the officer working for the the office is telling he, is telling him, "Are you a, re- a relation to Lou Riel? Because you know that, you know this regiment has fought your relative, and and was trying to shame him down. Do you still hear me?" Mm-hmm. Okay, cool, because I'm going to transfer phone right now on a second. Okay, you hear me well? Yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, cool. So he was still identified as a Métis and still self-identifying as a Métis. You know, despite the danger of war, the danger of discrimination, he pushed that identity forward. He became even friend with other Métis soldiers on the front line. Um, due to the correspondence that we, we did find. So there again, an example, a classic example of a Miki person from Quebec, drafted in Ontario, making the ultimate sacrifice as a Miki person. Now this person, this Patrick Hiel, was good enough to be a Miki back in 1918, for everybody included, um, including, for example, in 1932, a Miki leader from Alberta that wrote a piece about them celebrating. And yet today is not good enough. You wouldn't be good enough for the Miki or some Miki that claimed that this guy was in fact what? So then you start to realize that this makes no sense. That these stories that are that are hurting the memory and the history of local Miki people across Canada, this is no good. The same way that it's no good in universities by some professors to claim that there never has been any oral story in Western Quebec in terms of Métis people. And they claim this point blank without blinking on videos in conferences, uh, you know, instructing students about this. And yet never have met 
these people never went to their elders to inquire if there are any oral tradition. Well, that we did in the articles that we did on Marie-Louise Riel that has been published since a while now in English and in French. And then, then again, then again, you see that there is an oral tradition. We found not only in the families in northern and western Quebec, met elders in the bush there, in Val des Bois, for example. But we did find evidence in the archives, in the press back in the days, as well as a document made by the families of testifying of that oral traditions of her great grandmother, okay, connected to the McGregor Métis families from Sault Ste. Marie as well, living in Western Quebec that claimed that they did protect Royale during his time and protecting him for, for time there as Louis Riel always needed to be in motion and that this woman, that Métis woman, protected him. And so there are stories that this woman, Marie-Louise Riel, would be related to Louis Riel from uh, a union from the father of Louis Riel that stayed in the dark during his travel for businesses. But there are no details to recall that. But this is what we call an oral an oral tradition by me claiming to be among the people of Louis Riel some some times ago and recognizing the press of uh, back in the days of, of, of part of the Miti people as well. So to suggest that these people have no oral stories, to suggest that people have no history, to suggest that their veterans as well as their elders have no value and are only race shifters, opportunists, and other things like that. I mean, you know, I mean, I, we believe that this is not the best way forward for any positive conversation to to happen. I mean, it may seduce some people in the press. You know, it may seduce a drama seeker. It may seduce some bloggers that wants to entice, you know, hate and excitement on the web about these subjects. It may also entice people that have no cultural understanding of Miti culture. It's to go by default into a nationalistic narrative simple enough for their identity while attacking the identities of other people. Like, I mean, I don't know at this point how to explain this, but certainly we think that by producing um, evidence and to produce the oral stories of these people, we will get definitely a well, and I think that's an excellent point. And I think uh, we're up over the hour here, so I think that's probably an awesome note, Seb, to uh, end our conversation for today. Um, I sure appreciate having you on the show and taking the time for us. Thank you, Jason. I hope that uh, I didn't let you ask a lot of questions there. I realized. <laughs> well, you, you have so much great information and uh, great stories to tell. Yeah, and uh, you could probably go on for a long time. I mean, you know, that's that's the problem. I guess that's the problem with people with uh, strong passion. I get up in the morning and I go to bed at night with that passion for sure. And uh, I just want to make sure that 
every everybody and their history and their culture is included into this and respected. I mean, this is my wishes into this, including the people that may understand their history and their culture differently than what I suggest. I mean, uh, coexistence would be best for all of us. I think that this COVID crisis and this situation do highlight to make sure that despite, you know, these accusations and these misunderstanding, we, we can produce better conversation about this that are more respectful and that are not giving each other like, you know, like the baddest intent ever and sweepy accusations. And just to realize that, okay, well, what is what exactly? And to make sure that everything is. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Seb, and I really look forward to talking to you again in the future. Right again, and then, uh, hopefully all the best for the people in Alberta there and other listeners across uh, this land. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to connect with us on social media, head over to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts, which can be found by searching for at Métis Podcast or can email us at metispodcast at gmail.com. Also, we have started a monthly email newsletter, so if you would like to get your email added to the list to keep up with anything new and interesting from us, please make sure to email us and let us know what, that you want to be on our uh, email list. We hope you all have a fantastic week this week, and until next time, the jig is up. <laughs>